0: Welcome to the Arrow Buddhism Podcast Series. The following podcast is an excerpt from a teaching given by Chong Rinpoche in San Francisco in 1997. For more information on the Arrow Buddhist tradition, please go to our website at arrowbuddhism.org. One can see that whenever one speaks about bodhicitta or compassion, the connection is what's important. Now, it should be sufficient to say, form is emptiness and emptiness is form. They are non-dual. Work it out for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> right, I think we'll go now. That's, that's, uh, <laughs> that is actually all there is. One actually needs no other instruction if one can really follow that, because it explains itself. Obviously, if one has some little degree of experience, then that starts to have some life. Mm -hmm? But for that to have life, one has to experience that within oneself. Mm -hmm. Like, what is this emptiness and form? What is that in me in terms of comprehension and incomprehension? You know, in terms of anxiety and safety, hope, fear, praise, blame, meeting, parting, gain, loss. You know, these things that are called the Jigden Chugya, the eight worldly dharmas, you know, that are always polarities and are always expressions of emptiness and form. So everything within dharma is an expression of emptiness and form, and how they are non-dual. So that real compassion, from the perspective of Dzogchen, is non-duality. Because one cannot have compassion without wisdom. So compassion can only be compassion where there is wisdom where they are non dual So Buddhism is comprised of methods that unify wisdom and compassion. You know, if you want to look at it politically um, as a socio-political construct, you can say that um, when there is sufficient affluence within a society, people become more compassionate. When the level of affluence dips, then people become less compassionate. They start looking after themselves. Then if you say, what does a higher level of affluence mean? Well, that higher level of affluence means space. It means I'm not in a state of claustrophobia about my situation. You know, I'm not having to fight other people off. So. I'm somehow more relaxed about my existence. Therefore, I'm more concerned about the existence of others. You know, it manifests in every kind of condition. That's the thing that I personally like about Buddhism. You know, that it's it's everything. You know. There's. There's nothing that is excluded from that, because everything partakes of its analysis. You can look at the society, you can look at everything through it, you know, in terms of the interplay of emptiness and form, and what is required for compassion to exist. And it's always wisdom, and wisdom is emptiness. So emptiness is the space in which compassion can arise. So, in order to have compassion then, silent sitting is very important. That is the space in which that compassion can arise. Does anyone have any questions from the first part? You talked about compassion or bodhicitta being an activity. Uh, isn't there something called uh, aspirational bodhicitta? <clears throat> the aspiration as the activity. And how is that? Aspiration is always a movement, you know, from one position to another. Mm-hmm. <coughs> so it's always considered in terms of action, you know, because aspiration. Um, um, I guess when I was young, there was a certain kind of aspiration going around about who wanted to write a book or a screenplay or who wanted to travel to Antarctica or something, and um, no one ever did anything. <laughs> that, that was one kind of aspiration. Marijuana smokers are fond of that kind of aspiration. You know, they, um, they tend to talk about all the wonderful things they're going to do <laughs> never do. Like, get off the couch. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, aspiration then, if it's real aspiration, is linked with something with a direction. Your aspiration prompts movement. Mm -hmm. That's that's really important. But then, you know, that aspiration has to be really um, connected then with something vital. That to make that aspiration, is really important. I think that's very much linked in with um, a kind of a tedious topic that I, that I like in particular, but I'm not sure if anybody else likes it, uh, that's connected with honour. Honour is an old-fashioned term. You know, um, It existed in societies once, and now it doesn't exist so much anymore. Um, honor, promise, and now everything is process. <laughs> well, I know I said that, but I'm in this you know, process at the moment, and I, I now don't say that anymore. Mm-hmm. Not that there's anything wrong with process, either. And promise can be stupid. Mm? I, can, you know, I can promise something really stupid. And then be held by a stupid promise that was made out of ignorance. So obviously, you know, promise isn't the thing, and process isn't the thing. Because promise is form, and process is emptiness. If someone can really live by process, then that's fine but you often find people who live by process aren't that open to other people's process. They'll say, you promised, oh, that's my process now, you (laughs) know. That's the kind of, you know, if process is fine, then everything is process. But, you know, I think that the whole thing about honor is very important there with uh, aspirational bodhicitta, because there, the aspiration holds you to something You know, it's, wouldn't it be nice if I could do something for all sentient beings? Yeah. Okay. Well, I've made the aspiration now. I'll you know go and have another hamburger or whatever I'm going to do, and it's gone. Mm. So I think the sense there is that that really means I make that aspiration. I make that promise. That means I'm tied to mm. that, and that is very energetic. Then I really have to do something. You know, if you read history, there are all kinds of <clears throat> very inspiring statements about you know what what people used to do on on, on points of honour. Mm. Very interesting, and you know, so we you, you miss out on that when we get involved with you know when we emphasise process too much. So that's very much involved with that kind of bodhicitta. You know, you make a promise. But it holds you, you know. and, and that being held is the connection. You know. mm-hmm. But if, if it's holding you, then aren't you at risk of doing something out of obligation rather than sincere motivation? Uh, oh, sure. Yeah. How do you deal with that? Well, everything is mixed, you know. Yeah. <laughs> until, you, until you are fully realized, everything is mixed. Now, pure motivation is dreadful stuff. It's really terrible business, this pure motivation. Uh, I, I hope someone will really beat me up one day if I ever say I have pure motivation. <laughs> it's 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 better never to think I have pure motivation. It's better always to try to have pure motivation, but you know to kind of assess yourself as to whether your motivation is is pure is is to enter a paranoid world, mm-hmm. and then to judge others also <laughs> on their level of motivation. But if your motivation is always mixed, then it's you think I'm doing my best, you know. Sometimes I'm you know, donating merit to all sentient beings out of obligation. And it feels like that. Mm-hmm. That's going to happen. I mean, that's realistic. And then you can say, yeah, that's where I am at the moment. You know? I don't have a lot spare. I'm going to try, though, even though I have to you know, force it through obligation, because I'm a practitioner and I'll do that. But that's to realize that one moves through many different kinds of circumstances. So sometimes it's obligation, sometimes it's joyful, sometimes it's a mixture. Sometimes it might even be enlightened activity, you know, (laughs) that might just sparkle through, one might just do something, just out of the blue and think, whoa, I did that, that was interesting. (laughs) I've not done that before, you know, I didn't, you know, there was just, I let something go just for nothing there. You know, that can always happen. So, I mean, you know, there what's important is having a (coughs) compassionate relationship with oneself. I always remember, when I lived in Cardiff, there was a doctor uh, who used to have an interest in various spiritual things. And um, he went along to see a Lama one night who came to give a talk And this particular Lama was talking about how it's important to care for yourself, to love yourself, you know, know, as a basis, to feel good about yourself. And um, he was very impressed by this. And um, a couple of weeks later, I was giving some teaching at uh, a local Buddhist center, and he asked if he could come along and meet the... uh, um, the um, geshe there, it was a you know, Geluk center, and um, so we went along. I, 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 I'd known this Geluk um, geshe for quite a few years, and um, so we went and sat in with him, and um, we had a cup of tea, and we had some questions, and uh, the doctor was asking him stuff, you know, and saying, you know, I was really impressed by this lama I heard last week who was saying that, you know. You have to, you know, you have to love yourself. You know? And the Geshe said, oh, no, no. You know, others, you know, you must love others, not yourself. And of course, this really disturbed the doctor. <laughs> oh, dear, there's this big conflict here. So I said, um, geshe I said, um, uh, maybe I should explain something here. He said, you know, I said, um, The Lama who made this comment, I said, um, I think he made it on the basis that, you know, a lot of people in this society don't like themselves. Some people hate themselves. He said, really? He said, "Oh, in that case, then." <laughs> but he'd never come across this concept, you know. He just really never heard of it, you know. He said, "Well, yeah, sure. Said, I've never heard of this, but if you're like that, then sure, you must love like yourself." <laughs> so that's, you know, that's really important. But in Tibetan culture, that's kind of taken for granted that you think you're an all right guy. Oh, I'm all right, you know. So everything is directed towards other. And it was like I was with um, one of my teachers, Kabji Chimerickson Rinpoche, in Germany, and he was um, talking about Tonglen and you know, giving a whole teaching there. And I could see the audience looking more and more depressed. <laughs> and suddenly one woman said, I can't do this. What is Tonglen? Oh, you know, um, giving away all, all self-benefit uh, and taking on the sufferings of others, you know, as, a, as an internal process. And uh, so he, he kind of looked at her like she was a piece of cheese or something, said, <laughs> and said to me, you answer this. <laughs> And so I had to explain, you know, that really in the Tibetan culture Bodhichitta is, uh, you know, very macho. You know, it's it's not like I'm going to take on the sufferings of others because there I am, up on this cross, I'm crucified, that's what happens this is this is what we have in this culture. Mm? That's the result. But, but for a Tibetan, it's, uh, it's a lot of chest-beating. I'm going to be a bodhisattva, I'm going to save beings, you know, because if I'm a bodhisattva, I can take it, not I'm going to be crucified. That is not the concept. But I think the concept there is that I take on these sufferings, then I get cancer in every atom of my body and I shrink into a, a cinder, that, that's not how Tibetans see those teachings. Yeah, give it all to me, I'll take it all and I'll give everything away and it's a, it's a whole different attitude towards it. You know, but we're not used to that—the idea of suffering and taking it on. Yeah, I could see the whole audience feeling burdened by this idea. (laughs) Oh my God! You know, the suffering of the world—I take it on. I disappear. You know, uh, that's. So you know, in terms of aspiration of that—that's—that's also that you know, I become strong enough to do this. You know. Yet when I recognise the emptiness of phenomena, the emptiness of my concrete existence, then you know, what is there to suffer anyway? It all goes into this emptiness, gone. Mm-hmm. So that's that's really important there. You see, shine or shamatha is really the ground of everything. You know, if you don't have that, then there can be all kinds of other things happening. You know, that's also what what makes compassion possible. That one creates that space in which one can appreciate the other person. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, I've been thinking about this, this theme a little bit, and it sort of just came up tonight in the talk, and. I, you talked about the energetic quality of bodhichitta. It seems to be part of the energy of that quality has to do something with intelligent bravery, um, some, some quality of mm. that. Yes, absolutely. That yeah, very much, because, uh, you see, one can't really talk about compassion without wisdom. You know, the two always go together, you know, that um, in order to have compassion, one has to have intelligence. You know? In order to allow intelligence to really function, one has to have bravery. Um, you, know, th- you know, that always equates with uh, the three you know, bodhisattvas, Chenrezig, Manjushri, Vajrapani, you know, mm-hmm. you know oh, okay. wisdom, compassion and energy, you know, energy, bravery or whatever. Is, you know, is really important, because one can't simply have compassion without intelligence there, because intelligence allows it. This is one of the um, you know, things that always gets in the way of compassion, one's own lack of understanding or, or one's fixed state, you know? Like uh, my little son, uh, Robert, when he throws up on me, I I am not angry with him. (coughs) If we go out to dinner, you drink too much, you throw up on me, I may have a different attitude. (laughs) Because I attribute greater responsibility to you. (laughs) So there, but then I say, well, you know, maybe he's having a hard time at the moment, you know. How bad do I feel about this? (laughs) But, you know, the problem when someone stops being a baby in arms, they become a child, you start to attribute more and more responsibility until someone's an adult. Then you assume because someone is an adult that they have your level of responsibility. And if they don't, then one judges them according to some criterion. Mm -hmm. And compassion is not possible there. You know, that... um, The interesting thing here that Western people don't like, those who are addicted to democracy at all costs, is that people are not equal. Mm -hmm. If people are equal, then compassion can't exist. It's their inequality that allows compassion. Because if everyone is equally responsible for their acts, then how can you be compassionate? You have to judge them, you know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know this is the whole way the criminal system works. you know it's not that someone has a deep problem here, which is why they're doing what they're doing. Mm-hmm. So compassion really rests on inequality on recognizing that. I recognize my son doesn't mean to throw up on my shirt. in fact he has a habit of uh, Whatever you've got on that's clean or new, he throws up on it. He seems to do it almost instinctively. You know, but <laughs> um, it's, it's kind of interesting yeah. you know, that, um, that because people are adults, suddenly they're all equal. Now, when I say yeah. that people are not equal, I'm not saying they are not intrinsically equal, they are equal as enlightened beings, as beings. But in terms of their capacity, they are, in, they are unequal. And one has to recognize that and say, what is the condition of this human being who is treating me in this way? You know? I mean, you know, one also finds that, you know, not that, I'm a great expert on the Bible, but um, that is a, a very interesting thing that Christ said, you know, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do not, Father, forgive them because I'm a really great guy and I don't mind. <laughs> That's really important that they don't know what they're doing, you know, they're doing this stuff. You know? That's why one forgives people because they do not have the capacity or knowledge, they're acting out of ignorance, they're acting out of pain. And if one perceives that... Where someone is coming from, then how can you be angry? It is easy to be angry with a child, you know. You know that is just reacting, and that you know, Robert doesn't know this is a clean shirt, or that uh, I just brought this back from the dry cleaners. What? Over goes. <laughs> and and you know, people do the same thing emotionally. Mm. This raises a difficult question for me, which is. <coughs> Can there be compassion in response to willful evil, for lack of a better word, willful destruction, <coughs> when you actually assess someone to be acting out of bad interest, where <coughs> there is intelligence but there is also manipulation and a willingness to actually uh, manipulate, use, and uh, you know appropriate people one's own interest, very destructively? In the Buddhist tradition, can one uh, meet that with, with the bodhicitta? Because we are talking about someone who can assume responsibility but is choosing not to. Uh, well, well, that in itself is an incapacity. You see, intelligence is a very overrated... Um, when I'm talking about intelligence here, it, there are two kinds of intelligence. There's intellect, I suppose, and there's intelligence, you know, prajna. Uh, which is an open quality of intelligence that, that looks openly and then there is a kind of a constricted form of intellect that can be highly intelligent in a more um, commonly understood way that can be very very distorted, like uh, in my couple of years of of counseling in Cardiff you know of working you know you know, therapeutic way with people. Um, I'd met a lot of depressives, and they were all very intelligent. You know, they were so intelligent that they found an answer for everything, so so the intelligence there itself was sick. So at, at a level of, you know, sociopathy, where, where someone is... Uh, Apparently, very deliberately doing things. There will be a reason for that, and that is that they have a very paranoid worldview. You know, it comes out of paranoia, of having to safeguard oneself at all cost. So inside that person, you will find someone very terrified, basically, even though they're hiding it. Now, I mean, one might need. To protect oneself against <laughs> such a person, that's for sure, but. Uh, <coughs> We're you know, a there, so yeah. It would really be an extreme inside paranoid mm. view, so that I actually want compassion from the yeah. from Buddhist view. Oh, well, sure. I mean, you see, that's, that, I mean, when you actually look at um, whatever I am prepared. You know, to do to you or anyone here, I then have the imagination that that can be done to me. I can't be a hitman without a concept of being a victim of, <laughs> of a hitman, because that's part of my worldview. So whatever I'm prepared to do to others, instead of (coughs) cheating them, swindling them, killing them, torturing them, is is what is there in my imagination for me. That then becomes possible. The greater kindness I have for other beings, the less I'm prepared to damage other beings. That is what I see in the world also. Even if something else happens, even if I am badly treated, it doesn't really affect that view that much because that is my dominant view. So, you know, this puts one into a terrified position. So the more you do to others, the more dangerous you have to become in order to protect yourself. So I was completely paranoid. Paranoid. So that's, that's a great cause for compassion, really. You know, seeing that kind of brutalized existence, you know, the level of fear that's hidden there. Mm.